What is up, my friend? And welcome to The Dan Go Show. I'm your host, Dan Go, coach to high-performing entrepreneurs and professionals. And what we do at The Dan Go Show is tease out the best practices of the highest-performing entrepreneurs in the world while sharing cutting-edge, evidence-based information to help you become healthier and wealthier. So if that's what you're into, you're in the right place. Click that subscribe button wherever you listen to podcasts so every time one of my episodes goes live, you'll be the first to know. So here we have Todd Herman. I am incredibly excited for this interview. Todd, uh, something that you may have noticed or may not have noticed, but uh, in a both real life perspective and also a parasocial perspective, you have kind of been mentoring me along my journey of, uh, of trying to be the best person that I can be. Um, if for context, uh, for a lot of people, Todd and I are actually part of this, uh, this group, it's called the frontier club. And I have literally been every time that Todd posts on the frontier club or when he did post, I, I would be probably copying, pasting every single word, putting it up on my Evernote and then just like reading it over and over and over to seep the the experience and the wisdom that he, that he has. So Todd, just want to say thank you very much for coming on this podcast. Really appreciate well, it. Well, I guess my day's done. I got my big check mark. Um, yeah. Well, I appreciate <laughs> that, Dan. Um, so w- whatever you know, ways that I've been helpful in helping you to show up in the world like you do, then um, I'll take that as a huge win. But uh, as always, delighted to spend some time together. Yeah, appreciate it. So uh, this very first question actually comes from uh, your wife, your wonderful wife, Val. All mm. right. So, uh, so let me set this up. So basically, uh, the thing that you talk about the most, or the thing that you, that, uh, Val loves hearing you talk about is the term potential. Mm. And it's like this term where it's like, okay, well, this guy's so talented at football and he has so, so much potential to go pro, but he never made it to practice. And then, yeah. um, she said that your response to that would be in this paraphrasing. It's like, you know, essentially the part of being an elite performer is like wanting it so bad for yourself that you're willing to make your hands bleed, practicing, putting in the reps. So if this guy didn't go to practice, he truly didn't want it. Therefore there was never any potential in the first place. Yeah. So the question that she said that you would usually ask is like, do you truly want what you want and what are you doing to get it? And because usually you would find out what that person says is going to be the true tell of like how much they actually want it. So the question for you, is how did you know that you truly wanted to be in this work of being in identity-based performance? And Mm. what led you to that point? So um, I, when I was playing football, so I was a college football player. I was a national ring badminton player. I love sport. I love what it does to you, how it shapes you, what you develop as capabilities and skills, how it challenges you and that. And then um, there was a distinct moment that when my brother, my older brother got done playing uh, football, uh, we were on the sidelines, he's in his football gear, we're kind of crying it out, kind of thing, giving him a big hug, you know, I'm congratulating him on an incredible career as well. And uh, and he kind of like pulled away, got me by the shoulders, and he said, uh, now our job is to go and inspire other young people to love sport as much as we did. And um, I'd say my older brother, Ryan, one of my older brothers, Ryan, um, he's, he's far more of a natural leader. I had to really develop the skills um, to, to become a better leader. And so, yeah, it was sort of just this moment. I, I love coaching. And it, was never, it wasn't going to be this. Uh, that, that I never had a vision of it. 
of the world that I ended up building for myself, but I just loved coaching. So I started volunteering at a high school, coaching defensive backs on football. They started getting great results. Um, parents started asking me to mentor their sons and daughters. And I said, yeah, sure. And this one lady, Debbie, who was my first ever client for her son um, said, okay, well, how much do you want to charge? And I was like, I wasn't expecting that. And I was like, well, how about $75 for a package of three sessions? And so that was my price. I started in 1997 and that was my price until the year 2000. Um, and so when you're that cheap, you get a lot of reps, which has been, um, ended up becoming a superpower. And this all gets to your question of like identity-based performance. What I learned as I was getting all these reps and my name started becoming more synonymous with like mental game and peak performance and whatnot. And again, coaching was not an industry like in that space back in the late nineties, coaching like business coaching or life coaching wasn't really an industry that was out there. It wasn't a market. So I was kind of like breaking through the, um, the ice shelf, so to speak. And, but when I started working with more elite and elite athletes, uh, they were using a different methodology for how they were showing up on their fields and winning. The best of the best would say things like, oh, I've got this persona that I take out on the field or the court. I've got this alter ego. I've got this character that I step into. Um, and it resonated with me because I used an alter ego when I played football, um, Geronimo. And so it was sort of like a meeting of the minds. And then it wasn't until about 2003 when I was preparing um, a young woman for the Athens Games in Greece, 2004, that she, just the way that she languaged it, I was like, all these dominoes dropped in my head where I was like, oh, wait a second, there's, this is an actual thing amongst the best of the best. So I started piecing this together and I realized that at the core of this was people were using their identity to go and win on their field instead of just thinking about habits and behaviors and actions and, you know, uh, routines, they were really using identity. So the alter ego concept that, that I'm known for is more built off of this identity based performance. Alter ego is the tool that I help people change and transform really rapidly. And going back to the, something that you just mentioned, which was Geronimo. So I, I'm very curious about, uh, you know, what, where does the fascination with Native American history come from with you? And also, uh, you did mention that, uh, or I don't know if you mentioned, but through the research, you've actually used the alter ego like a long, 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 long time ago uh, before you even kind of like realized this stuff working with athletes. Can you take us mm -hmm. through uh, that story? So the the fascination and the, and the love and the appreciation for the native American world is natural. I grew up in a big farm and ranch in uh, Southern Alberta, Canada in the town of Schuler, which is statistically the smallest village in the entire province of Alberta where I'm from. Um, but when uh, growing up, I had a horse Cracker Jack and I used to ride around on our, our big ranch and I would go looking for old fire rings and our land happened to have a whole bunch of them because when Sitting Bull had the Battle of Little Bighorn against Custer and they fled across the border uh, from the U.S. into Canada, they actually came up into our land and were there for a bit before they went into southern Saskatchewan where they ended up settling for a long time. So I just, I don't know, there was just something about that world that I, that I loved and resonated with. I loved the stories about it. I loved their caretaking of the land and being a farm and ranch kid, you kind of understood that. And um, 
but getting into the alter ego of Geronimo then, and it ties into like the, the method that I work with people on when designing that mental model in your own mind, that alter ego of what you're trying to aspire to become or transform into. I talk about how one of the key things you have to have is I call it the source code part, which is you need to have, you, know, you have to have a connection to it. I can't mm -hmm. just sell you an alter ego off the shelf. I can't sell you an identity off of a shelf. There needs to be a, a deep resonance within you. And so for me, I was a high school football player that was 158 pounds soaking wet. Um, I was fast. I had speed. I had technique. I practiced it. But, you know, like there's, there is a physical deficit when you're not six foot four or 240 pounds sometimes against these bigger guys. Or so I thought. I mean, and we've all heard stories of people having feats of strength when, you know, they shouldn't. They lift a car off of uh, their child who, you know, got um, tucked underneath it because of some accident or whatever. And somehow someone has a freak uh, moment of strength. So it was out of, I wanted to be great at the sport. My insecurities or my lack of confidence in my size was getting in the way. I was telling myself a story about what I thought I could or couldn't do. And, you know, that person over there is going to be better because they're bigger. Um, and all of that isn't true, but that was true for me. That was my, tr that was kind of my truth, so to speak. So it was out of a need and a desire that was, uh, and I just used my creative imagination to build Geronimo, which was a composite of five Native American warriors led by Geronimo and my two football heroes, Ronnie Lott and Walter Payton. And then um, I had this very specific routine and visualization strategy that I did when I was in the locker room and this ritual that I had to like become that when I went on to the, to the football field. And uh, yeah, I mean, it got me football scholarships and, and took me a long way. Awesome. Now, obviously we're like fast forwarding right now and you know, you've coached for about 26 years. Is it 26 or 27 years right now? Going into the 27th year later this okay. year. Yeah. That's freaking an entire <laughs> lifetime right there. Uh, you mentioned that you've done uh, 19,000 hours of one-on-one uh, -on -one coaching. Uh, I wish I actually took you up on the, the 75 bucks for like three coaching sessions. That's like a freaking yeah. steal to me. Oh my God. <laughs> That'd be amazing. And, uh, and you've, train some of the greatest athletes and leaders on mental toughness, peak performance and resilience. What would you say are some of the biggest lies that, you know, people say or people tell you when it comes to developing a championship mindset? Well, one of them is that it is available to everybody. I just, um, one of my mentors was Jim Rohn and Jim, uh, famous speaker, like just an, absolute legend in the world of standing on a stage and captivating people for, you know, an hour or two hours or four hours. And he just had an amazing way with words. And one of his analogies is, you know, Hey Todd, your dad's a farmer and he's going to go out into the field and he's going to spread a lot of seeds to grow a crop. And you know, some of those seeds are going to produce 30%. Some of them are going to produce 70% and some are going to produce a hundred percent. Now your dad would drive himself mad and crazy to go and yell at the 30% stock of wheat, try and make it a hundred percent stock of wheat. Now this might sound very defeatist to people now, mm -hmm. but in my experience, there are just some people 
who won't develop a champion mindset. And that's their, their own stories, or that's their own circumstance that they tied themselves up in, or that's genetics as well, which is massively overlooked in people's abilities to go and achieve certain things. Some people are just doing the wrong thing. You can develop a great, an incredible mindset, but that's not going to change the fact that you're kind of not really built for the thing that you're doing. Now it might be, and some people stay in that purgatory of, um, it could be a business. They're, they're trying to make this business work and they might be doing it because of family pressures. They want, they think it's what someone else wants them to do or someone else did it. And they, they like the idea of how that person turned it into something. Um, or they're just playing in the wrong, wrong field. Michael Phelps is a great example. Michael Phelps genetically was custom built to be a phenomenal swimmer. If instead he applied his same mentality and his insane work ethic to basketball, he would have never, we would, wouldn't be talking about Michael Phelps. So one of the misnomers of champion mindset or just being a champion period is it's, it's really not available to everybody. And that's a lot of times because of what they're trying to become a champion in isn't actually right for them. Um, so that's, that's one of the things that is uh, a misnomer. And then secondly, I would say that there's just a whole heaping load of really bad ideas coming from the self-help, personal development, spiritual traditions that just break under the weight of analysis. And what are some of those that, that you would say? Yeah, that, um, that affirmations are going to be the great breakthrough for you and that they're always healthy. Here's a great rule of thumb I like to give everybody. And so to the listener, if you take this one thing away as a mental framework to evaluate almost all ideas through, you are going to set yourself up for incredibly clear thinking and you're going to avoid a lot of traps that people get uh, pulled into. And that is that nature is the ultimate filter to pull ideas through. And in nature, there is no thing that is always good. Water is a good example. Water sounds like it's good, nurses the body. But the last thing that I want when I'm floating in a raft in the middle of the ocean is more water. I might want some drinking water, but I don't want more waves crashing on me. So everything in the world exists on a band for the most part. So there's hyper and there's hypo, hyperhidrosis, hypohydrosis. You're, you're, you're now um, starving yourself of water or you're drowning yourself in water. So an idea like affirmations that everyone props up and says, oh, they're just, oh, it's, it's what I did to change and transform my life. It, it's a massively simplified narrative that that person's putting out there. And studies show and again, you can go and find the links yourself, but University of Waterloo in Ontario has done uh, studies on it. King's College in London has done studies on it. The Neuroscience and uh, Behavioral Sciences Lab at Stanford, UC Santa Barbara have all done studies on this as well. That someone who says an affirmation to themselves tries to affirm something to themselves when they don't actually believe it, it statistically causes the likelihood of a depressive state or even depression more than if they would actually affirm the truth to themselves. I am fat. I'm lazy. 
and I am not eating healthy foods to get me to where I want to go. That's actually far more motivating than saying the exact opposite. So if you don't have a level of confidence or belief in the thing that you're stating to yourself, the likelihood of causing depression or a depressive state is extremely high. But where affirmations can help you is when you already have a level of confidence. What that does is it strengthens it then. So if you already feel like you're good at speaking, you telling yourself over and over again, I am an I am a captivating and articulate speaker. I can hold people's attention when I'm on stage. Well, it's probably because you have experience doing it. You're not inventing the experience out of, you know, the ether. So that's an example of, you know, just a bad idea that's out there that, you know, causes more harm than I think good for a lot of people. And you ended up working with, who is one of the arguably most greatest basketball players on the planet. His name is Kobe Bryant. Um, rest his soul. Yeah. Now, when you were working with the Black Mamba, not a lot, <laughs> I call him the Black Mamba because it's so synonymous with his name, yeah. but when you, were, when you were working with him, you were actually the one to help him uh, develop that identity. Uh, yeah. Can you take us through how you did that and actually the context of why you did that in the first place? Yeah, sure. So it's, it's, it's one of the common things that, you know, sort of the space that I hold, um, a lot of the peak performers or top performers in, you know, entrepreneurship or public figures or, um, sport would come to me when they're either making a very big transition. Um, they're going through an extraordinary challenge and it's affecting their performance. Um, they're feeling stuck in some way. So, the precipitating thing that caused Kobe and I to come together was he was going through the um, sexual assault allegations in Colorado back in 04. And uh, he ended up reaching out to my mentor, one of my mentors, Harvey Dorfman, who's the giant of the mental game industry. Uh, he wrote the book, Coaching the Mental Game, amongst many others. He's known as the Yoda of baseball, incredible man. And uh, Kobe had reached out to a friend who had uh, to a friend of his and got connected to Harvey. And so um, he was reaching out to Harvey because he felt like he was, quote, losing his edge. It was July and he was about to be starting basketball uh, preseason camps. And he was terrified of losing that edge as a basketball player because that was the one identity that he felt like he had some control over at this point in time, even though his entire world was in massive upheaval. And so in the conversation with Harvey, Harvey said, oh, you're not losing your edge. You're going through an ego death. Um, and he said that because but people don't remember about Kobe is Kobe from the time he came into the league as a high schooler always played off of or got to enjoy the fact of being the innocent child archetype. Okay. And because uh, he was a young guy, you know, Michael Jordan take him under his wing and other people. And he kind of was able to get away with that sort of uh, collegial, adolescent, um, sometimes immaturity thing. And, and it worked for him. But this shattered all that because now he was in the adult world um, and making a perceived adult mistake. So he's going through an ego death now. And Harvey said, listen, I have a guy that I've mentored who really specializes in identity and you should probably talk to him. 
So um, we actually did a, like a three-way uh, conference call. Harvey kind of passed off the relationship to me and we kind of took it from there. So, um, and Harvey was dead on right. He was going through that ego death and we needed to, I, I needed to, for Kobe to realize that who he was up until that point, it's gone. That's, that's, it's, it's not there anymore. That is a chapter in your life's story, but now you need to actively create the new identity. And I was only tackling the one on the court. I wasn't going to help him. I don't do therapy. I don't do life coaching. You know, even though some of those, some of the themes might come up in the coaching, I'm not, I'm not a therapist. That's not what I'm about moving you forward and helping you perform. And that's what Kobe wanted. He wanted to continue to, um, you know, build his legacy. So in that conversation, um, I explained, cause it was only about a year into me actually using, um, alter egos and kind of character invention at that time as one of my main tools. So I was explaining how th the use of the alter ego can help bring him through this, you know, tumultuous or transformational time a lot more quickly because the moment you change your identity, again, your identity is what your attitudes, beliefs, habits, behaviors, your actions are all stacked on top of the identity itself. So if we change the identity, we can change all of those things with a lot less friction, a lot more speed. And in my world, my clients, speed is one of their values that they have for wanting to, you know, whether it's pursue work with me or anything. They, they, all, they always have pay a premium for speed. And because, you know, camps were starting right away, speed is what Kobe needed as well. So I say all that to kind of prep it. Um, I got very clear about how he wanted to be showing up out there, which wasn't going to be that much different, but he just felt like Kobe couldn't go in. Like it was just, he, again, he felt like he was losing his edge. He was losing his edge. Kobe was losing his edge. So I'm not going to fight with trying to reshape your identity using the existing story and narrative and circumstances you have. I Let's just build a brand new one. Because that disassociation between your current self and this alter ego is a powerful mechanism to create change. And because we all do that, right? It's like, oh, well, of course, Dan Go can build up a, a high performing fitness coaching company because of insert X, Y, different story, right? All these different things. Oh, well, you know, he's in these special groups that he mentioned earlier. I didn't know that Dan Go was in these special groups and it's giving him access into like, you know, great people who can connect him. And we do that. It's the grass is greener on the other side effect. So all I'm doing is I'm leveraging existing concepts that live inside of most human beings to help them just perform better. So the alter ego leverages grass is greener on the other side. You know, who's the inspiration? Because I can see that guy going out and killing it on the court. Me right now, oh, I'm having a hard time with that. So the explanation was, was key first, getting Kobe to appreciate the need for the alter ego. Because if I just prescribe him an alter ego without him really understanding it, and having it connected to his current state of affairs, the odds of him going out and engaging with it aren't very high. So mm -hmm. it did that. And then I gave him some homework. I'm like, hey, now open up your mind, open up your awareness to the sources of inspiration. In, take in inputs, media, movies, television, books. Think back to like who inspires you, what inspires you. And it can be anything. It can be a person. It can be a, an object like a uh, a mechanization, something mechanical, uh, or it can be an animal. So 
that was it. Those are the kind of the three main filters I give people. People, characters, whether that's fictional, nonfiction, could be people in your own life. And then it's um, robots or mechanics or machines, or third is animals. Those are kind of the three main um, big sources of uh, alter egos for people. And he started, he just one day was watching um, Kill Bill. And there was the scene where the assassin uses the black mamba snake. Emotionalness, calculating, just strikes. And because he was going through so much emotional turmoil, that was the reason he chose the black mamba. He attached to that idea, you know, plus the fact that it was a black mamba, you know, he's a, you know, uh, he's black as well. So that was, you know, not talked about as much, you know, publicly by Kobe, but that was another thing that connected him to it. And then, and then once he found that source of inspiration, then I work with him on, well, what is it about that? Let's, let's really dig into those character traits, those attributes, those qualities that you see that you want to take out onto that court. I'm not building skills. I'm simply trying to amplify and allow those skills that are already nested in the human beings that I work with to come out naturally because most people have a governor or a cap on the way that they show up. And uh, now through a new and better idea, the Black Mamba was able to transmute that energy on, onto that court for, for Kobe. And then the final phase is then, is then building that mental movie theater with that client of, or the ritual of how they get into that state. Okay. That was, Sorry uh, for the long monologue, but it was... Uh... <laughs> that was incredible. Yeah. And something that you mentioned is that you're bringing out the skills that are already inherent. There's like something that I've, uh, I've read Kobe's uh, biography um, by Roland Lazenby, and he was just like a cold-hearted motherfucker. Like he was, yeah. he, he was just cold. And then for, for him to like reaccess that through like the alter ego, it seems like like a lot of times people would say it's like fake it till you make it. But I don't think that's what you're getting at right now. I, I think that the alter ego is about bringing out someone's inherent uh, skills that are already there. But, but you can correct me if I'm wrong on that. Yeah. Well, it's, it's more about pretending it, practicing it until you become it. Right. And it's very natural for you. And when you think about your own life, like that's, that's pretty much the iterative process for most of us, right? Like no one that's listening to this chose typically everything about the identity that they show up with. There's a lot of invisible strings that are tugging on your behaviors and your responses to things that, you know, lie deep into the recesses of your, you know, unconscious and your history that you don't even know why you're doing some of the things that you're doing. Um, and, and so, I mean, the reason that most people have a, uh, a negative association with the term fake it till you make it is just, just the word alone fake, right? It's, it's in there. So it doesn't really work, but we did it as kids. Like we, we pretended that we were our favorite, you know, superheroes or our favorite sports star, or we were pretending to be a nurse or a doctor when we were, you know, playing things with our, our siblings or our friends or whatever. So, and pretending is one of the very natural phases of childhood. And that's a way for us as kids to learn skills very rapidly. Um, even cognitively, the way that our brain is structured, we're actually, you're familiar, familiar with brainwave states, um, Dan, right? And we talk about mm -hmm. flow state a lot. There's a lot of people out there who even posture as like, you know, flow state experts. 
and whatnot, and they read literature on it, but they haven't coached people on it. And the attitude of playfulness I found is one of those golden keys that unlocks that state because it removes ego from it. Because if your ego is engaged, it's really hard to get into flow state because um, you end up becoming, um, you're a narrator, um, am I right for this? And you know, this is, and we want to remove that. But children from the ages of six months to seven and a half, depending on boy, girl, years of age, your frontal lobe isn't fully developed. Um, it's not really super active really is what it is. And the frontal lobe is where our reasoning and judgment skills sit, our higher level thinking skills sit. But if we had that thing functioning when we were young, we would never develop into the human beings that we are right now. It's our creative imagination from six months to seven years of age that is activated. And we're actually in a theta brainwave state. If you put five-year-olds into a biofeedback machine, you'll see that they are on in a theta brainwave state. And that's the zone and flow state for the most part, right? And that's, they're just sponges. They're just soaking things up. And that's why they use pretend and play to develop skills more quickly. They have no concept of me, I. There is no I. There's no identity as a six-year-old. It's only until we start to develop this frontal lobe area that we start to see ourselves in a way that's, oh, there's, there is a me that's here. And there is my own existence that's here. And that's where our frontal lobe starts kicking in. And we stop pretending. We stop playing. We look at the 13-year-old go, oh, they're so cool. I'm going to model them. And we keep on doing that. We keep on modeling people who don't have their shit figured out. Um, and, and then we trap ourselves in this world of non-creative energy. And so really the, the driving force that makes the alter ego concept work so well is the fact that it's tapping into our real superpower, I think, as human beings, which is our creative imagination. It brings us back into that. Yeah. You and I were having a conversation uh, a while ago. It was at Cactus Club with our mutual friend, Nick. Yeah. And one of the one of the biggest things I've learned, uh, I, basically, like every time I sit at the dinner table with you, I'm like, I'm like taking notes, mental notes inside my brain. Uh, one of the biggest distinctions that you made was actually about your website. So on your website, you put, I coach. Uh, I, I forgot what the, the other I ones build. were. I build. And, I write. Uh, I speak. Yes. Now, the layman's eye would look at that and be like, okay, okay, that's what, that's what Todd does. But you're very specific and you're very mm -hmm. intentional with how you use those words and also how it plays into one's identity. Yeah. So um, we love nowadays to throw labels on ourselves, right? Like, you know, I am an entrepreneur and, and, and it's because we want to absorb in what we think that gives us as you know, credibility in the world or something like that. But most people use labels or identity and they become a trap for them. But we're not nouns. Human beings are verbs. Hmm. And that's the distinction for me is, so I don't, on my, on my personal website, I don't say I'm a coach, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm an author, and I am a speaker. Those are all true statements, you could say. But I care more about coaching. I care more about building. I care more about writing and speaking. Plus it's actually my process. I coach first. Then from the nuances of me working with like elite humans like you or Kobe or Cristiano, I see that there's like, there's things that this group does differently than 
what's postured out there in popular self-help books. And so then I build programs or I build businesses that can impact more people because, you know, the average person can't afford to work with me privately. And so then I build something that's more leverageable that I can share. And then that is going to get battle tested against more people. And then that gets refined. And then that means now I'm going to write something about it. So I write my book, The Alter Ego Effect, or I write the children's book, My Super Me. And then I speak on these topics as well. So that's how I think of this as my process for how I lead my professional life as well. But it's also because, yeah, I, I, identities can be taken away from us. Uh, on for, like when you lose your business, say, God forbid, something comes along and it disrupts something and now you've lost your business, you can have a loss of identity. And when you, someone loses their identity, Kobe is a great example there. When you feel like you're losing your identity, you can feel like you're losing everything. Um, and yet when I have the skill set of building, you can't take that away from me. I have the skill set of building. So even if my business takes, is taken away from me, I am still entrepreneurial. So I don't call myself an entrepreneur. I call myself entrepreneurial and I can go and apply those skills inside of Dan's business for a little while, because I'm trying to figure out like what my next move is. And I can ping you and say, Hey man, you know, do you have some projects that you're working on right now that, you know, I can come in and help you with. Uh, and you go, yeah. So I can be entrepreneurial in your world and then figure out my next thing. So I just, I try to give people those reframes on things because I do, again, after coaching for so many years and decades, identities can be used powerfully. Like I like to try to do them where it's intentional. You created your identity, not someone else, but for the most human beings exist, their identity is a, is a trap, um, that they're, that they're stuck inside of. Can you uh, take us through, let's just say like um, you're helping me with creating an alter ego for myself uh, when it comes to becoming, uh, let's just say, more entrepreneurial, uh, sure. bigger thinker. Like what would be the steps that you would take, let's just say, with me or with someone else to help them create that alter ego for themselves? Well, you, so you started it off right straight off the bat, which is you actually... Um, focused the concept of the alter ego or the identity down into like one domain of your life. You didn't say, how can you build an alter ego for my world, for my life? Cause there is no one identity that we all live through. Like there's CEO, Dan, there's coach, Dan, there's creator, Dan, um, in your world. And then there's also promoter, Dan, or a salesperson, like there's the, right. And that's where a lot of us can get challenged who really love the subject matter of our world. Sometimes we're terrible at selling ourselves or promoting ourselves, right? Um, so that's the first thing is like, okay, well, what area of your life do you want to be using or leveraging um, this for? And so you say entrepreneur world. But even in that, we just even show, like there's many hats that we wear. And that's why working with entrepreneurs is far more difficult than working with an athlete because the athlete has basically just the one identity. It's the, it's the performer on that basketball court or that golf course or that sheet of hockey ice, whatever it is. That's, there's a lot more knowns in that world. There's a lot more unknowns in the entrepreneurial space. So then I'd say, okay, well, inside of your entrepreneurial world, Dan, which is the one that gives you the most resistance, the most friction? Um, and another way of coming at it, which one would you like to have more fun with and be more playful with possibly as well? I would, I would say it would be the building aspect. I'm very comfortable uh, building 
uh, my audience right now, very comfortable creating uh, for, you know, my audience as well, very comfortable building. I'm really happy you're saying that because if you said that you're uncomfortable, I was going to feel really terrible about myself. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're an absolute beast at that. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, for me, I would say it's the, it's the thinking and the actions uh, to, to play like the bigger game, um, to, to play a bigger game of uh, not only income, but also impact. Okay. So let's say that we're going to put that underneath um, an umbrella of visionary. Okay. Mm, yeah. So, okay. So we're going to build out the visionary alter ego for Dan's career world, um, your business world. Then it's, well, so now we're moving into this. So first we identified the role or the field of play. That's how I kind of language to people. What's the role or the field of play? Now, the second thing is, well, what's frustrating you right now about the way that you're currently showing up or what's getting in the way there? What are the, what are the traits and qualities you're bringing to it? So for me, just to use me as an example, mm -hmm. I built out Super Richard in 1997. Super Richard was the first alter ego that I used in business. And, um, he was hired to be the advocate for Todd's stuff. So this is all language that I like to give people another way of, so I'm going to hire this alter ego because right now Todd goes to bed with a lot of grand ideas for the phone calls and the partnerships he's going to do the next day. And then he ends that next day, not making those phone calls to try to get himself some speeches or some workshops back in 1997. And he's not growing this business. I didn't need help in my confidence as a coach. I still needed to build lots of like more skill set and, you know, knowledge base there. But I love that. That was very natural for me to like consume content and then put it into practice and, and, and work with an athlete on at that point in time. But man, sales and promotion, I was captain suckety suck. And so my three attributes were confidence, decisiveness, and being more articulate because I was not confident. I was uh, not decisive and I was not a very good communicator. So I, and even in there, it gives you step two and three, your frustrations or the character attributes that you're bringing to your thing can also then tell you right away what the attributes are that you want to bring, which is getting into the source code. So for you, what is it about the visionary side of Dan that is that you're frustrated with or challenged by? I, I would say most likely it is uh, the making of bigger decisions, but I want to throw some context in there as well, which is to say that um, I don't think big enough opportunities have come my way thus far. I do feel like bigger ones are going to come across my table. Mm -hmm. There have been a few that I've been thinking about, but, you know, going through kind of like my own, I guess you could say decision-making model, they don't, they don't seem worth it enough to actually pursue. So it would be the creating of, um, Man, yeah, this, this, this is actually a pretty hard one for me. For me, if I were to say it's like, it's actually to make the decisions and to, to throw down the hammer and maybe even to seek out opportunities, more opportunities to expand my impact on this world. I yeah. would say that probably. Yeah. Um, and so, and this is the balance now with working with the client. I could ask you the question of, is there anything beneath that then, Dan, that's, that's really getting in the way of you asking for bigger opportunities, yeah. voicing those bigger wants that you have there. Um, and whether or not, again, I don't need to do that, by the way. Like I don't yeah. always, because 
I don't need to like dig in the, you know, the knife, so to speak all the time. Hmm. But when I know that it's there, I can, I know it actually is there with you. Um, cause I can sense it. So if you wanted to share it, go ahead, but we don't need to. Um, yeah, I can share it. It's like, uh, I just feel really comfortable doing exactly like what I'm doing. And yeah. it is the expansion of the comfort zone. Um, most likely in the, the, uh, the work that comes along with it and the, the stress that I'll have on my time that I have, say, like with my family and doing the things that I want to do. That's probably mm -hmm. the, the thing that I think of the most. Yeah. So in there, there's a paradigm that exists where you're saying that if I do pursue this, I'm going to be losing time mm -hmm. with my family. And, and we don't know that that's true. We don't know that that's true. Yeah. So sometimes we got to challenge some of the, the, the paradigms um, that people are carrying with them. But uh, the other thing I would say about you, Dan, because I do know you, you know, personally as well, I would say that what's also there is you have a very strong humility and a modesty. And so sometimes I'm not saying this is with you, but sometimes um, that humility and that modesty can get in the way because we don't want to seem we could be egotistical or yeah. arrogant or, you know, or it's the like, ah, you know, why me? I can see that person over there doing it. You know, that makes sense. So sometimes it's like leaning into some of that, you know, what we perceive as darker energy. And I, I love, I talk about dark energy all the time with people where oftentimes your biggest transformation is leaning into the thing that you hate on the most. Yeah. You, you hit the nail on the head with that one because, uh, uh, ever since I was, ever since I was like a kid, I would, I would always kind of be like, you know, let, let others take the lead. Don't, don't put myself out there too much. And it's weird to say, cause I have however many followers on social media and I create yeah. like every single day for it. But, um, it is kind of like a, a forced humility and not even, I would say it's like a force, but also like a comforting humility mm -hmm. to be like, I'm, I'm just going to keep myself modest. You know, I'm going to keep myself humble. Um, and not necessarily talk with like a big stick or yeah. know, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Also so be cultural as well. I just want to throw that out there. Too, for sure. It is. Yeah. 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 I talk about in the book, um, in the, in chapter number three, when we talk about the ordinary and the extraordinary world. And, um, I talk about core drivers, which are, some people think core drivers are the things that um, are driving you forward, but they're also the, the core drivers that are also pulling people back. And I talk about how race, religion, your nation, where you're from, like mm -hmm. Canada, it's the, uh, you know, ah, shucks, apologetics, apologetic Canadian. You know, I've been living outside of Canada for, you know, 20 plus years now. And it's the thing that I like the least about the Canadian, you know, psyche is that because it causes a lot of people to not go out and take ownership of the, um, the amazing capabilities that they do have that, that, that false modesty gets in the way. And I think it's overplayed by some people. I, I remember we had a uh, interaction on uh, Facebook one day. Uh, and then I, I forgot what I said. Um, but it was like uh, talking about this big accomplishment that I had. And then I, during like one of the comments, I like played it down with you, I think. And then you called me out straight out uh, <laughs> on that comment. It's like, it's like, <laughs> Dan, I care about you so much, uh, but you should not be saying that stuff to yourself. Yeah. You should not be playing down your accomplishments whatsoever. Yeah. It's just like it's such a natural thing for me to do. 
in the first yeah. place. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, um, I have this sitting right here. So if someone's watching the video, I have this glass jar and, or if someone's listening, I got a glass jar in front of me and it has a bunch of different colored poker chips inside of it. Okay. And one of the frames that I give people is that, um, if we don't capture our wins properly and we don't own those wins, what ends up happening is we rob ourselves at the poker table of life of stacking chips in front of us. I call them confidence chips. And so when we do capture wins, when we do achieve something, when we do develop a new skill and it becomes natural for us and we're like, holy crap, I went through the level of, you know, being um, unconsciously unaware that I, this thing I needed, then I became conscious or consciously um, aware that I don't have this um, uh, or consciously unaware. I became conscious of the fact that I don't have this skill. And then I became consciously aware that I was doing it now. That's the doing part. That's the phase where most people strike out or they quit on something. It's because it takes effort to be able to turn something into um, a part of your identity or the, your behavior system. And then I become unconsciously competent with it. So you could go unconsciously incompetent, you know, consciously incompetent, consciously competent, and then unconsciously competent. But if we don't going from that consciously competent stage to the unconscious competent stage, if we don't recognize these things, and the way that I tell people is we should have a, a journal where we capture these wins in it. So I have many journals where I have all these different wins that are stuff that I've achieved over the lifetime of, of Todd here. And they're at the skill level, they're at the idea level, they're at the thinking level, they're at you know, the behavioral level and all these things. We're really robbing ourselves when we're about to, in your case, try to pursue a bigger vision. And so we rob ourselves of that. So I have those confidence chips sitting here, A, so I can use them as, an, as a metaphor and analogy on calls like this, um, but also to remind myself, because like anybody who's ambitious, we can take ourselves for granted. It's like, of course I was supposed to be able to do that, right? Like, so I want to stack as many poker chips as I can, confidence chips in front of my clients as I possibly can. So that when they're playing at the poker game of life and there's a hand that gets dealt to them that isn't the perfect hand, they still bet big on themselves because they know through the context of their past experiences, they figured shit out and they can do it. So like if you can only play a game when it's 25 degrees Celsius or 75 degrees Fahrenheit and it's a sunny day or it's an overcast slightly day um, and it's uh, the turf is a certain way or the grass is a certain way or the ice is a certain way or the greens are a certain way as a golfer, then you're operating with a lot of mental weakness, right? And you're, you're operating a lot of times with a lot of superstition as well. So yeah, when I find people that I care about and I see them being modest, I will be unmodest for them and I'll brag the shit out of them because I, I just don't want them to rob themselves of that opportunity because I know that people like you do a lot of great good in the world. And if I can have more of my friends capture more attention, have more followers, you know, you know, be able to lead people in a pragmatic and practical and scientific or whatever way, then yeah, I want you to play as big as you can. So now getting back to the actual alter ego building. <laughs> yes. So then what are the qualities that you do want to exhibit as the visionary entrepreneur? And another way of looking at it is who do you admire 
mm. possibly. They don't have to be your alter ego yet, but in this world, and it doesn't have to be a real person, it could be um, a character, you know, like who displays great visionary qualities? And then we would want to get into, well, what are those qualities? What are those attributes and traits that they have that, you know, you like or admire or want to have? One of them has to be Elon Musk. Uh, I just love how how big he thinks and also like the requisite actions that he takes towards the big visions that he has, mm -hmm. uh, the balls that he has, the courageousness, the bravery. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, the other one I would actually say is probably Tim Ferriss. Um, I just love Tim's decision-making. Uh, I love kind of like how he uh, organizes his life to to be productive, but also to kind of like allow life to happen as well. Yeah. Um, Andrew Huberman is a new one. Uh, I, yeah. I just love his education, his or his education, and also his grace that he displays. Um, he's just uh, like when it comes to his online persona, even though I don't really know him that well, uh, he yeah. just displays this amazing amount of grace, but also through this knowledge and wisdom. Um, I would say it's those guys. Um, maybe throw in like you know James Clare in there um, mm -hmm. because uh, something I love about James is like his simplicity uh, towards his business and his life. Uh, yeah. He he has a very lean team. Um, he only has like one book out there, uh, and he is very content to uh, to have those things while living life with his family and yeah. uh, and doing what he's doing. Yeah. Okay. Um, is there anything when you kind of unify all those people together? that seems to be like uh, a unifying set of traits, attributes that they, that they might exhibit or like, well, these two really exhibit um, this kind of intentionality, but the belief in that intentionality as well, or it's discipline or it's um, communicating their, their message in a consistent way as well and what they yeah. want. So I would throw, I'll probably say that uh, authenticity and, and what I read from them is probably one of the biggest ones. They are truly, well, again, you know, I don't know them personally, but they yeah. seem to be as authentic in online as they are in person. And they're very uh, authentic with the uh, creations that they put out there as well. They're not convoluted. They're, yeah. uh, they come from their heart. Um, Can I ask you a question would, on that? Yeah, would you sure. say that they are apologetic, authentic or unapologetic? Um, unapologetic authentic i would probably throw that in well elon would be uh i i would say like if uh if huberman makes a mistake then he would he would obviously call it out on himself and be authentic in that way um mm -hmm. uh, same thing goes with like uh say like tim ferris or something like that from from what i see yeah yeah um because the reason the reason i say that is because authentic for me is and you've heard me talk about this is, is, yeah. is a, I think it's a trapping word for many people, unless you own what that idea is for you. Um, and I don't think that a lot of people have a clear idea in their own mind of what that word means for them. Um, where sometimes they're doing authenticity to get a result or to, um, impress other people. Right. And like, you know, when I think about how I would show up in the world, I'd feel like I'm, even though I don't use, I don't use this term because I don't really like it. I don't think of authentic, but I'm real. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and so the, so long as you own that, so long as you own what that idea is, 
Yeah. 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 The the word is is nebulous for sure. And then I would say it's like it is more so on the side of what you're using with is like which is like real. Uh something that comes to mind with yourself is uh, you know, just sharing parts of your life, which can be not necessarily trying to garner like likes or whatever. You're actually trying to do it as a cathartic process mm. to put yourself out there. Like that's that's probably what I would lean towards, like the realness of like what you put out most likely. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So to bring it back to like now the, the model of what we're trying to build out, if there was like three to five words that you'd put together and if you thought of yourself, okay, like, man, if I could step into that visionary entrepreneur and I was honoring those qualities, boy, would that ever help me break through this kind of current um, bubble that I'm sort of operating inside of. Do you have any idea of what those words might be? One of them would probably be like a combination of bravery and courageousness. Yeah. That's probably agreed. Yeah. The, the other one would uh, be the realness factor. Um, you know, kind of transcribing that word and Mm -hmm. more towards like the realness of things. And, uh, I think the last one would be most likely being a strong decision maker. Um, that would, I would probably throw that in, and and I am open to suggestion. Like you, you, we've been we've known each other for almost like a decade, so yeah. So definitely, yeah. You, you can throw yeah. stuff in there if you if you deem fit. Yeah, I would I would actually if there was one thing that I would say, um, you kind of talk about with courageous and brave, but if there was one thing that I would love to see more more Dan go of in the world is you being bold. The one thing that you don't need any more help with is discipline and consistency. You already proved that through the way that you've grown and scaled yourself across social media. Like those are literally the two things I need to reinforce the most with clientele is listen, you can, you can talk about being elite all you want, or you can talk about, you know, wanting to be a champion, but if you literally can't do table stakes, discipline and consistency, which is the thing that separates, you know, those elite people away from everyone else, then all of this other stuff is just pie in the sky, lovely mental masturbation to make you feel good that you're making, but you've got consistency, you've got discipline. If there was just that, you know, little extra engine that we throw underneath Dan Go, it's being more bold, I'd say. And so being more bold would be in a practical sense, literally just whatever those wants and desires are, you inviting more of the people that do follow you and support you and want to see you win, letting them know just what you want. I would say that's the biggest thing that holds so many good people back is they literally just don't express to other people what their wants are. Because Mm. I'm the type of friend that if I have a friend that I know wants to have a Netflix show, oh, well, hey, I've got seven different people I could introduce you to. And then I can talk to you about, like, well, what, what's, the, what's that vision? Is it, is it like a, is it a docu-series? Is it just one documentary? Like, what is that? Like, knowing that other people want you to win, I think is one of the most important cheat codes to add into your OS inside of your heads or inside of your head. Like, I just have a fundamental belief that people want me to win. And then it makes me take actions that align with that then. So 
after that little monologue. Dude, <laughs> thoughts, was, on, thoughts on being bold? That was amazing. Um, Frank, I love that. So bold, um, we'll, we'll replace bravery and courageousness with bold. Um, we can throw realness in there. We can throw decision-making in there. So let's just say like these are the three top traits. Now, what are the next steps uh, to so, me showing up like this? Yeah, so now it's exactly like what I told Kobe or yeah. the thousands of others. Now just open up your awareness to seeing sources of inspiration for you. And you might already know it, like what already represents the idea of being bold or courageous, or um, I would actually remove decision-making, um, Dan, from it, mm -hmm. frankly, because um, I think you already have that as a strength of yours. I think you're really like, I think you are thoughtful. You're, you're a really solid thinker. Um, you know, of course we always want better frameworks to help us, you know, sit through it, but decision-making, the thing that makes it the easiest is values and vision. When you know what your values are and how you want to operate through, because values is a field of plaything. It is something that unless you can express your values in behavior, then you don't know your values. What I mean may by that I ask is, you, I'm sorry, may I ask you yeah. like, um, just a side note, like what are your personal values in your own life? So, um, one of my core values that permeates no, every single domain is family. It shows up inside of, um, my Herman global, like the kind of, um, let's say umbrella company. Hmm. So family is a core value to me. And, but how we language it then inside of our world is we know we're honoring our value of family. When Karen, who's my chief of staff, son, Brandon's volleyball game, which is on Wednesday at two o'clock in the afternoon, she's at the volleyball game. I know I'm out of alignment with that value. If I'm not participating in my kids' life, my wife's life for important moments for them. So we need to take these values and express them onto the field of play so that we can hold ourselves accountable to that value. So, um, so family is a core value to me. And then the other, another core value that's there is pushing harder. And pushing harder for me is it's both an internal and an external thing. For me, it's about from internally, I know I'm honoring the value of pushing harder when I know that this year I moved through some extremely challenging times, emotionally, physically, mentally, because there was some friction that was there and I came out the other side better because ultimately that's leading me to my vision of my, my, my vision is I want to leave this world with as many smiling pillows as possible because someone knew me. And the reason I say smiling pillows is the most honest place in your home is your pillow. There's no more honest place than your pillow because it is a place where you rest your head at the end of the day and you take stock and account of how you showed up and what you did that day. 
And you either beat yourself up for not saying something when someone wronged you or wronged a friend or said something to your significant other, or you, in the moment of feeling rageful against your, uh, your kid, you didn't fall into that emotion. You actually held your higher ground and you remained calm so that you could guide that kid who's having a tantrum into a better emotional state or the phone call that you said that you were going to make in order to try to do the deal or strike up a conversation with a new partnership, you actually followed through on it and you did it or you didn't do it. And so where that came from was straight from my experience of being pissed off at myself for not making the phone calls when I started the peak athlete back in 1997. And I was really good at working with these young athletes. And I saw how many of these young athletes were being coached by poor coaches, being parented by parents who kind of weren't showing and exhibiting that they gave a shit about their mental well-being or even caring as much about their success in their you know, chosen sport. And then I would not make the phone calls to book more workshops. And so I had a pillow that judged me every freaking night. And so everything that I put out there, content, the training, the stuff, I always ask myself, will this help someone smile on their pillow? Is it going to help that one feel better about themselves? And if I can have more smiling pillows, then I've achieved my mission and my vision for my life. I love that. I love that. Um, anytime that I put my head on a pillow or anytime that anyone else puts their heads on the pillow, it, that is usually when the truth comes out of like mm -hmm. what you did that day. Yeah. Uh, and what happened that day and how you consolidated it as well. Um, yeah. I, I know this cause I just had a, <laughs> maybe a couple of days ago, I had a moment on my pillow where we were locked out of our LinkedIn account and I couldn't stop thinking about it. And I ended up like waking up at 3 a.m. in the morning. I know. In cold sweats. Yeah. Uh, okay. So going back. So, uh, so going back to this. Yeah. Is now kind of open up your mind and, and find some source code of inspiration for who or what might model that easily for you. So it becomes an easy image that you own in your mind of that's what I'm trying to move towards. So like me as a dad, you know, here I am, I'm a challenger personality type with uh, the way that I coach people, because I'm typically trying to knock through the hard exterior of ego. And, and um, again, there's some huge personalities that come my way. And they have a lot of people around them that are just yes people. And I'm the exact opposite of that. I think of myself as the mm -hmm. prudential rock, you're going to crash your ship on me. And, and I'm going to rebuild you. And because that's what you say that you want. But I build that identity over many hours and now many decades in my life. And it would be very easy for me to believe that that's who I am. Oh, I'm a challenger personality type. Mm -hmm. Here's what I know. Being a challenger personality type or persona with kids doesn't work all that well. <laughs> so my model of inspiration for who I want to be as a dad is both my own dad and Mr. Rogers. So this is just the magazine article. Typically it sits right behind your magazine cover. Typically it sits right behind me along with some other totems and artifacts. And, and that's because on the, again, if we go back to nature and the band of things, challenger might sit over on this end. And then the, um, the other aspect of that is being maybe a little bit more soft and malleable and playful. And I think of Mr. Rogers, he's not a challenger type, but it's pretty hard to argue with the career that he had as a, you know, 
inspirer and motivator to young kids. And so I want to be patient and kind and, and thoughtful and caring and loving and playful and creative with my own kids. Those are my seven that I think about when I'm there. And then that's why I never wear my glasses around my kids. I have a, a certain uh, beaded wristband that two of my daughters made for me. And I have it on a hook outside my door. And I, when I'm ending my day as CEO or Coach Todd, I stop and I have a ritual so that I can try and be a thoughtful and intentional about the identity and the role that I'm stepping into so that I can parent my kids so that they can stack, you know, live life with as many confidence chips in front of them. What would so, you say is the, the ritual that you do before, or can you explain the ritual that you do before you step into the, the home and also the ritual that you would do before you step into the field of play of yeah. uh, running your own business? So the one with the family, and again, this stuff becomes so quick. Again, we talked about pretending, practicing, becoming. Um, I'm, 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 I'm becoming a new dad back in 2013. So I go back to, okay, this is a brand new role that I'm going to have. And I, I grew up in a farm family. I already have skill set. I'm very comfortable around young kids. But um, that's not good enough for me. I want to be very intentional with that. So I rewatched some of Mr. Rogers' uh, neighborhood. Won't you be my neighbor? Um, and I see, oh, he gets down on one knee when he communicates with kids. Mm. He always gets down to eye level. There's certain just body language that he has that softens the kind of, you know, lording over. Like his kids, kids are, their context is big and little a lot. And so there's certain things that he does to soften things up when he comes in. He's sort of like, he brings his shoulders together so he's not so big and broad. And um, so I'm just paying attention to that. And so I practice that. And because I want to model that to my own kids, there's, there's real method to the madness with the way that he showed up and even with my own dad. So then when I'm going to get into that, I want to think about stages and fields where, where do my, well, my home is a natural stage and a natural field for me to go and perform this duty of being a dad. All right. So when I'm in that home, how can I model that behavior the most? So going back to like the ritual that I have. So, you know, I, I take off or I grab the, I grab the, um, the beaded, uh, bracelet with my right hand. I, I don't do it with my left cause it, I slip it on my left, uh, wrist. And before I put it on, I just check myself into, again, the, the mission and the vision that I have for my own kids. The worst thing that I could have is someone say, yes, Todd created a lot of smiling pill pillows for everybody else but his own kids. Mm. Like that would crush me. And so I go back to my own mission and I want my kids to smile on their pillow at night being grateful and thankful for having the parents that they have. And, and then I think about my traits that I want to bring of being creative and kind and uh, playful and to, to my own kids. I know what those things look like for me because each one of those represents actual behavior as well. So it's not just the idea of it. Like I can really think about the behavior. That means getting down on one knee and uh, not making myself so big in front of them and all that. And then um, when I slip it over my hand and onto my wrist, I'm, I'm imagining the color that imbues this. I use colors a lot when I'm teaching people about visualization. So I have a favorite color that I use that represents me as a, as a dad and it's green. So I imagine the green light coming onto this and it starts to like, you know, sort of take over my entire body. And again, this is all happening now 
in like a second and a half. That's the beauty of this. But you know, when you're, when we're building this for the first time, it might take a few minutes. So I'm putting that on and then, um, I pull the wristband, uh, away. And when I snap it, that's when I imagine Mr. Rogers and my dad standing behind me. And now they are the spectators of my performance with my kids. And because I am representing them, this is the, this now gets into the alter ego method and why my method is so much more powerful than just someone else talking about alter egos. The I'm, cause I'm leveraging a whole bunch of psychological triggers that are built into all of us. We, we will do more things for others than we will do for ourselves. Mm. Right? Well, instead of me trying to change your paradigm on that, Dan, why don't I just use that for us? Okay. So I've got my dad and Mr. Rogers watching me. Um, and, and now it actually means something even more different to me because my dad just passed away a few weeks ago. Um, and I can feel him. And, and so I, and I, I will not, the, the thing with it is I will not dishonor their memory in poor behavior or poor attitudes, poor execution with my kids. And if I did, if I find myself acting out of alignment with how I want to be with dad, I take off the bracelet. It helps me do resets. There's rituals built into my life so that I can lead it the way that I want to lead it and being very intentional so I can get the outcomes that I want, which is, you know, how I'll be judged as a parent is whether or not we as a family do family vacations together when they're 25, right? That's how I think about it. Like I'm playing a massive long game at parenting and that's the challenge for most people is you will not see the outcome of your performance for 18 to 20 years. And um, that's why so many entrepreneurs will go and invest their time into their business because the feedback loops are much more rapid and they'll not invest that time with their kids because the feedback loop is so slow. Hmm. And you mentioned you mentioned something in uh, passing right there that uh, the listener may have kind of glossed over, which is the adding of like sound effects to the activation of the alter ego. Mm -hmm. And it's like part of this whole ritual where you like snap it and then boom, it, yeah. it starts happening. It, where does that where does that actually come from? Because like for me, anytime that I do like a YouTube video, I'm always like clap. And then I'm like in the mode of doing yeah. it. Yeah. So um, it's actually what Andrew Huberman and I were going back and forth on uh, Twitter. Now X, I guess. Yeah. Um, so we were Xing back and forth at each other. <laughs> and <laughs> Xing and owing. I don't know if it's we're gonna. So. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that could be that'd be constituted as like something else, maybe. But, yeah. But yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and cause he had just, he had come up with a podcast on visualization and, um, and I commented right away saying that one of the biggest misnomers in the world of visualization is actually in the word itself, because you think it's supposed to be just visual when in fact, the, the way that I've taught people and we mentor people on this is we want to create it as holographic as we can using all five senses and sound is one of the most powerful methods of getting people into the emotional state of what it is that they want. And, and some of that is because about 20% of humans actually can't form pictures in their own mind. I shared this with my wife literally not that long ago. It's just crazy to me that we'd never discussed it before because she can't do that. 
Like if we were going to buy a new couch and put it into our home, she can't see it in the house. Um, it needs to be there for her to say, oh yeah, this looks great or this doesn't look great. And, but sound is something that everybody resonates with. So I'll give you an example, Dan, like um, I call it the fly on the wall um, imagery technique. So instead of the young athlete or the entrepreneur walking on stage and getting the award and seeing themselves, you know, take the four steps to get up there, people standing and applauding at all the round tables in the dimly lit um, event space and walking over and grabbing the cold steel of the award and then turning to the audience and saying a few words. Even when I'm narrating that, some people find it very easy to get that picture in their own head. But was when I said the applause, everybody can hear applause. So instead of giving someone that imagery technique, I would say, let's play the fly on the wall. Um, you've got a group of your peers in a room at an event. And you just got done receiving an award. What would you love to hear them say? You're eavesdropping. They don't know that you're there. What do you want to hear them say about you? And, you know, one of them, you're like, man, the thing I love about Dan is he's such a great encourager. Like every single time I've sent him something to review for me, he always like makes me feel good about my, you know, thought leadership or my IP or something like that. And then he always gives me something super tactical. And then so, oh my God, it's totally Dan. Like he's got more little nuanced ways to make something better that I could ever put inside of a course, the amount of tactics that he's given me. And then someone else chimes in and say, you know what? Like Dan inspires me because here's a guy who wants to lead a simple life He's got such a nice, simple business. He makes such a big impact for the people that come in. And yet he doesn't rest on his laurels. And like he's in talks with doing uh, a TV show. Like he's always pushing himself to challenge whatever status quo is in his own head um, so that he can kind of maintain that mission of inviting people into leading an extremely healthy life. So, that gets everybody. Like I've had people, I've had clients from YPO billionaires down to like 14 year old athletes. Cause I know how to get into the six inches of people's ears that like tugs on their emotional strengths. And I need to do that, Dan, because in order for me to build a triune, anything, a triune athlete, a triune entrepreneur, a mentally, emotionally, and physically strong human being, that final bridge that determines whether or not the ideas get onto the field of play, the mental game gets onto the physical game, is the emotional game. That is the drawbridge that stops everybody and everything. And so if you are not emotionally connected to the idea, the chances of you being able to execute the idea, that idea with impact is extremely low. Because some people can still execute the idea, they can still do the behavior, but it doesn't land because it's the emotion that drives the energetic response from the opponent or from the audience. They can feel it. Like you can see it. Like you've, you've, you make, uh, you've given me advice around, I know Todd, when you, your Toddness is coming out in your tweet, like you've got a certain, something pissed you off today and nothing, 
that's my favorite is when Todd is angry about something that's in the world. Um, so, yeah. Even when you were, when you were saying that, just like, it was like goosebumps gave me like heart palpitations. Yeah. Uh, when you were saying that and, um, you know, a lot of people are like, I don't give a fuck like what people say about me, but the truth is like we do and we care about like what our peers say about us. Uh, that's a, that's an incredible uh, technique that you have there. Now, yeah. you did mention uh, your dad, uh, may, may you rest in peace. And uh, you and I were having a conversation with uh, one of our friends at a dinner table. And uh, you, were, you were talking about us, about some of the lessons that your dad had imparted to you. Um, now, I wanted to ask you, uh, what are some of the lessons that your dad taught you that you would like to impart to your kids? Um. One of the best conversations I had with um, my dad was when I was going away for university. And again, I had two older brothers uh, on the farm and ranch, and uh, I never had the affinity towards it that they did. I kind of got some of the crappier jobs because if it was a three-boy job, then my older brothers would always make me do the sometimes the worst of it. And Were you, were you the youngest of the family? No, I have a younger sister who's just okay. a year behind me. Um, gotcha. So my dad and mom knew that I wasn't going to go off and, you know, come back and, you know, be a farmer or a rancher. And so his advice was we were working in the corrals one day, um, separating some calves and some cows. And he just, uh, we had, st we had stopped, um, just to fix something. And he said, you know, like you're going off to college or university and you're probably not going to come back to the farm here. Um, and whatever you go and do, I'm probably not going to be all that helpful for you because I know farming, I know ranching, I know cows. Um, but I just feel like you're probably going to go do something that I don't know much about. But hopefully, you know, mom and I have given you character traits and, and stuff that are going to be, you know, helpful and serve you. But my only advice is just whatever you do, um, believe in yourself enough to go and tuck yourself under the wing of the best. Mm. Just don't settle for anything but the best. So whoever you go and learn from, just get around the best because it's gonna, it's gonna help you a lot faster. And one of the best pieces of advice I've ever been given is, is that. Um, and you know, that's why, you know, having Jim Rohn as an early mentor and then Harvey Dorfman, who is a major mentor and Russ Acoff, who was, you know, the founder of basically systems thinking. And he tucked me under his wing for a bit. And then Clayton Christensen, who really transformed my thinking about business and the job of marketing with his jobs to be done framework and stuff. Um, yeah, like I absolutely stand on the shoulders of just incredible, you know, giants. And my favorite thing is one of the things that people say to me is, Todd, like when you're on stage, like you quote so many other people, like, why don't you quote yourself? And I'm like, and I'm, I'm like, well, <laughs> the rest of my speech is basically me quoting myself, right? Like that's what my, <laughs> it's my content. But, um, uh, I think it'll, it'll never, it'll never leave me. I will forever be sharing great ideas and thoughts and I will be honoring those people because they're the ones who said it. Um, and I'm here today because of them. The second thing that I'd share with that my dad said, we were, um, again, working with cattle in the corrals. This is typically when he's mo his most philosophical self. And uh, we were grabbing a, a pop or a soda to take a break. And uh, he said to me, he's like, you see that piece of cow shit over there? And I said, yeah. He's, I said, Todd, you can take a piece of cow shit, wrap it in a red ribbon, but it's still a piece of cow shit. And he specifically said that to me. My other brothers were there, but he specifically said it to me because 
I think he knew that I was going to be going off in the world. And I was probably a little more susceptible than my other brothers to being wooed and wowed by the veneer of other people's stuff. And all he was saying was, Todd, look past the red ribbons that people might have around them, fancy cars or fancy suits or whatever, and just see if they're just a piece of shit. Hmm. And I've said that on stage for 20 plus years now. And I've had people return to me and say that that saved them in interviews because I used to speak a lot to colleges and say like, I'd sit in an interview and I was sitting in an interview with say someone at insert the name of a big company. And I thought, man, if you're my manager, I'm going to be covered in shit the entire time. And so I chose maybe a, a lesser known company, but man, I chose a better person to be around. Mm-hmm. And then the third thing I'd say about my dad is um, it's the gift of time. Like he was just there. And uh, you know, when I was going through a hard time, when I was about 13, we just went for a drive in the country for two and a half hours and just sat there. Dad didn't say much. I didn't say much, but he just wanted to know that he was there or he, I was, he was there for me. So, and you know, like that's the challenge of, for those of us that are ambitious and, you know, we, we might have things that we want to achieve on the career side of things. I'm like, there's no achievement that's going to be better than seeing my kids lead a really great life for themselves where they're feeling like they're, very much on their own path and it's not designed by dad. It's not designed by mom. And it's, um, they're feeling very fulfilled. Like that's, that's extraordinarily important for me. And, and the relationship to the parents is the biggest win of all. It's, um, it's the thing that, that just shapes like how they're going to see the world. Now, do you still have time right now? I have like a couple of Twitter questions that people have at busted at me. Let's do it. Okay. Okay. So, Question from uh, one of my one of my followers. I should have just I should have just captured his name, but anyways, he asked, "What is the difference between you and a coach like Tim Grover?" Um, well, I'd have to first put, take that back to like um, our our careers where we were sort of where we, where we built ourselves. I was always on the inner game side of things. I never touched someone's physical performance. You know, I wasn't doing um, you know fitness training or anything like that with them. Uh, so I was always specifically hired for inner game or, or mental game work. Um, Tim was working with great athletes. He was making them physically resilient, which of course that affects, you know, your inner game and your mental toughness, but he wasn't specifically hired to be a mental game guy with people. So, um, and I would say now, Nowadays, uh, Tim's career is a lot more kind of trying to give people the ideas that he saw um, people have success with that he worked with. Um, When it comes to the mental game side of things, though, unless you're specifically hired to help people navigate that stuff, it's a very different ecosystem. And that's why I I challenge people on self-help, personal development stuff, because unless you've been in the gutter, or on the field, working with people one-on-one with thousands of hours of uh, work with them or reps, and not just with people who are kind of like mulling their way through life, but I'm talking about real elite humans that are striving to do very difficult things. The pressure on them is just so different. And what they do is not what's taught, typically taught in, in books and shared in books. They, 
they have a very different story and narrative that they have going inside their head. So, and just the difference between Tim and myself, we're, we might be operating in the same world now. Mine is sort of built out of a lot more practitionership than than Tim, but mm. Tim shares some share share some great ideas with people too. Awesome man, and um, this one's from uh, Amin Abdullah. He's uh, do you, do you know Amin by any chance? I don't. The name kind of sounds familiar, but I'm not sure. Uh, he's former no. CEO of like um, AppSumo, and um, uh, now he's uh, CEO. That's why I know that. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah. Okay, so he wanted to ask. What does an ideal day slash week look like for a high performer? Well, it's very much customized to you, um, right? So like, what, what are the important things that you want to be doing in, in your week? The things that light you up and, and give you energy because uh, any high performer that says that they're spending 90% of their time doing the things that they absolutely love is not doing very much in their life then. Um, because a lot of the world that we exist in at this at that level is boring, methodical, it's rote stuff. And so I hope you like it. Um, and so if a high performer can be taking care of table stake stuff, the stuff that you talk to people about, like um, that's going to set you up for the chances of success a lot more. Right. Like one of the first things I work with someone on is your sleep. Because okay? that's one thing that it's very difficult to ever overcome from an attitude, from a mental game, from an inner game, from a physical game standpoint, is if you're just not getting enough sleep, that's a that's a pretty challenging thing to overcome. So um I would say that there is one definite purpose of the week for you, one important thing that you're trying to move across the um uh the goal line of that week and that's an important distinction that from my world anyway because i think some people work on projects that take a really really long time and i like to compress things down so it's like okay great dan you're redesigning your website what's the one ball that we can move across the end zone this week that would make a measurable improvement and hopefully is actually is actually also going to be um, produced onto the field of play and you say, you know what? I can change up my header. I've been thinking about changing up the value proposition. And I'm like, great, let's do that. And then can you make sure it goes live? And then you'll say, well, if I do that, though, it might mm, kind of jank up the rest of the website. I'm like, great. That's only motivation because entrepreneurs hate having um, loose threads that make them look a certain way. Mm. So great, do that because it's going to make sure that the motivation is there in order for you to complete the actual rest of that front page of your website. So having one definite purpose, mm. taking care of the table stake stuff in your world. Um, and then for me, it would be making sure that you're also living and leading through the values of how you want to operate with other people, with your family or with your significant other. And if you can check off that box, I don't know if there's more a more fulfilling box to check off than when you feel like you really operated through the individual that you want to be not that someone else shaped you into being but the individual that you're choosing to be oof, that is a massive confidence chip to put onto your um table awesome awesome and this this is a this is a offhand question um 
what are your thoughts? Uh, because you're a huge golf fan, you you hit the Masters uh, a couple yeah. of years in a row, and I'm super jealous about that. <laughs> I still need to get you, uh, or I still need to uh, get a green hat or, or something like that from from the Masters. Easy, but, we'll uh, do it next year. We'll do it next year. Yeah. So, what are your thoughts on the the merger between Live and um, the PGA? Well, there's a lot of guys that are eating crow right now yeah. that I'm enjoying watching them eat crow. Um, and the reason is because being around the PGA tour for 20 years, I know who the loudest voices were with their lack of appreciation for how it was structured, but then how many of them didn't voice those concerns when live went live and they went, they took the exact opposite approach. Um, and people can basically surmise based on who the loudest voices were against live um and those are the people who are very hypocritical in their um you know uh criticism of that of that group what do i think about it it'll be really interesting to see what they do with it um if it's if there if there's one thing that's positive that's come out of it is there's no denying that now golf is in the you know everyday sort of vernacular of topics that are are out there which typically it would always play second and third fiddle to basketball and you know football and then maybe baseball and hockey in some way so um it's had a positive effect that way but i think my answer is pretty similar to all these things we'll see all right and uh this is a final question for me and, and thank you for being so generous with your time man i really appreciate it um i've been enjoying this conversation so uh, I want to ask you, what is the one activity or person, uh, that makes you happiest in the world? Um, that's actually really easy. Um, my favorite thing is giving my wife a head rub. Um, she likes, she, it just relaxes her, de-stresses her. Um, you know, my, one of my main five love languages is, um, you know, closeness. And mm. so, uh, she thinks it's me being like so giving to her, but it actually relaxes me too. So it's one of my favorite things. And I do the same thing with um, like all three of my kids too. So that kind of like head rub thing is, so whether it's snuggling on the couch or in bed or, you know, watching a movie, I'm typically like giving someone the, the head massage. I think I'm a world-class head massager. And uh, yeah, so that's, that's an easy one. Um, I'm going to see you on Friday and, I'm going to need a, a head massage. <laughs> done. Done. I'm going to, I'm going to pull out some of that thick head of hair that you have there. Cause I'm just so jealous every time I look at that gotta, dome that you have there. Gotta get <laughs> I got to break through the, the, yeah. the crunch of it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, brother, uh, thank you so much, uh, again hey. for doing this. I really appreciate you. Um, one thing that, uh, you have taught me in my life is, uh, is one to, to think past the veneer of, of uh, what you see and to be more thoughtful and more intentional with my life. And, uh, and yeah, man, I, I just want to say from a personal standpoint, I am just, I'm well, number one, I'm so glad that you're in my life. Number two, so glad that you brought me to this incredible town uh, that we're living in right now together. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, we're, we're going to see each other Friday. So I'm, I'm going to give you a big hug when I see you. Well, this is a, this is a win-win um, for, for both of us, buddy. Um you're inspiring and I, and I just love seeing you show up in the world that you, the way that you do too. So, um, yeah. yeah, I'm here to help you be more bold. Yeah. I appreciate that, man. Uh, all right. So if you're watching this, 
Uh, Todd, where can people, uh, where do you want to point people to? Uh, I know that we talked about uh, the alter ego in creating one. I think everyone mm-hmm. should be doing this. So you have a training that shows people how to do this, right? Well, yeah, beyond the book, um, we have uh, a live uh, course that kind of walks through it as well for people. It's not expensive by any stretch. And then every quarter, we typically do a, uh, a live kind of two-week uh, cohort uh, coaching program as well that, um, you know, it's great. I mean, I, it, people are always surprised at who they see come into this thing, um, like extremely high-level people that want to add this as another tool in their tool belt to help them navigate life with a lot more maybe grace and you know grit so um you know we have that toddherman.me is my home base on the interwebs and my favorite thing is always like if you screenshot the um if you screenshot the the episode whatever you're wherever you're watching it on and then you you take a story or you post it someplace i it's, i love hearing like what your favorite takeaway was and you take dan and myself like but i'm open and available dm me and and uh, yeah, I'm I'm here to help. Yeah, so it's uh, Todd underscore Herman Herman on uh, Twitter, and um, same on Instagram. Todd, same thing on Instagram. And if you are uh, watching this right now, or even if you're listening to this, uh, do grab his book. This is actually the book I brought with me to my honeymoon, and uh, and I was spending a lot of time with this book uh, <laughs> along with my wife as well, but. But yeah, this was fantastic. Uh, I actually read it a couple of times just to kind of like get the lessons uh, into my brain stems. So definitely get the book. Go to toddherman.me. And also, if you can sign up for that training, highly recommend. And uh, Todd, thank you again for coming on this. I really appreciate it. Cheers, brother. It was great. Loved it. Cheers. Thank you again for listening to The Dango Show. We have some amazing episodes coming your way, so make sure to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. If you're already subscribed and today's episode hit home for you, please share this episode with someone that you know who'd benefit from listening. Take care and see you every week on your favorite podcasting app.